Well, good morning. For those of you who may have missed last week's uh, message, uh, I would encourage you guys to listen to that. You can listen to it on our website, or we have CDs out in the lobby area. Every now and then, as, as a preacher or as, as a pastor, when I'm, when I'm giving a sermon, every now and then, it'll be ministering to me while I'm like up here talking to you guys about it. And sometimes, and this is even more rare, I'll get this new brilliant insight that, uh, that really expands uh, our understanding of what's being, uh, what's being said in the Bible. And I'm sitting there in my mind thinking, wow, I've got to come up with a way to articulate this like pronto, really quick, on the spot. And last week was one of those weeks where um, I had a couple uh, observations um, of the text that I, I had spent the whole week studying it, and up here I got some new stuff. <laughs> so it was one of those things that happens, and you try to articulate it as clearly as possible. But I, last week, man, that was one of, the, um, one of my favorite lessons in our study of Mark. Um, but today, we're going to see a question that's going to help us to determine whether or not an action is sinful. It's not always black and white. Oftentimes, sin is very difficult to discern because what might be right for one person in one sense, what the Spirit might be leading one person to do, might be different from what the Holy Spirit is leading somebody else to do. And it's not laid out explicitly in Scripture, for example, music. You know, should we listen to secular music or should we not? Uh, which translation of the Bible should we use? You know, things like that. How do we know when something is or isn't sin? Well, today we're going to find a question that's going to help us determine that. And this question will be one of the most helpful things that you can have as you walk and as you grow with Jesus. In the previous passage that we covered last week, we saw what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which of course was a fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Daniel that was written about 600 years prior to this time in the text and which uh, got started in motion uh, almost 500 years prior. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he did two things, among others. First, first he prophesies over the city, you're going to be destroyed because of your lack of faith. But then he does two really significant things. First, he curses a fig tree between Bethany and Jerusalem. And secondly, he cleaned out the temple again. Remember, he had done that before. We saw in the book of John, he did that at the beginning of his ministry. And here he is at the end or toward the end of his earthly ministry, and he does it again. And he brought the entire sacrificial system in the temple to a grinding halt, refusing to let anybody carry merchandise through the temple, which brought the sacrificial system to a halt. And of course, this infuriated the priests in the temple, because we're talking about their livelihood, but we're talking about more than that. We're talking about their power. We're talking about their influence. And of course, uh, this infuriated them so much that they would begin plotting Jesus's death and that would come, of course, within just a few short days. So as Jesus and his disciples were walking by that tree that Jesus cursed again, the fig tree was dead. It was withered from the roots up. And in response to Peter's brilliant observation that the fig tree was dead, Jesus revealed to his disciples and to us principles for how not to be cursed. And of course, the cure for the curse is to have faith in Jesus. And Jesus went on to explain that there will be obstacles to our faith which will make it feel impossible 
to have the type of faith that's required of us. And we saw that maybe the most common obstacle of all to experiencing a growing faith is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, bitterness, unrelenting bitterness, which can seem like an impossible mountain to scale. And for that reason, Jesus instructed that when we pray, if there's anyone that we are holding unforgiveness toward, we're to forgive them. Because forgiveness is not optional for the follower of Jesus. It's necessary for our emotional well-being, our mental well-being, and it's necessary for our spiritual growth, and it's necessary for us to walk closely with Jesus. If we're going to be like him, he forgave, we must also forgive. So this sets the stage for a final confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. But first, we should notice that we're skipping a verse. Last week, we ended in verse 25. This week, we're starting in verse 27, and there's verse 26 in there. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bibles open and with you, you'll see that verse 26 is probably in italics, or verse 26 might have a footnote that says that this wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, And that's the reason that it is in italics in some copies, because it wasn't found until several hundred years later. We have manuscripts that are very early that don't include verse 26. And besides, what Jesus says in verse 26 doesn't really fit the context of what uh, Jesus is talking about here. So with that said, I don't believe that verse 26 belongs in the text. So Jesus and the disciples have just walked past that dead fig tree, which represents the nation of Israel, and they're, way, they're on their way back to Jerusalem once again, the day after Jesus had cleared it out and halted the sacrifices in the temple. Now remember, the, the disciples are expecting Jesus to come into Jerusalem and reign. That was the promise, that the Messiah would reign from Jerusalem, and that is what they are expecting. So at this point, the disciples have got to be pretty confused because they had these false expectations of what Jesus was there to do. They thought that he was coming in to slaughter Israel's enemies. They thought he was coming in to free Israel from Roman oppression. But here we are on day three, and it hasn't happened yet. And they've got to be thinking, okay, at what point is he going to do these things that he is supposed to do? All he's done is make the priests and the religious leaders angry. And now these priests and religious leaders are about to confront Jesus with a very important question. So we pick it up in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. We'll start there. We read, They came again into Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? So Jesus not only returns to the city of Jerusalem, which took some courage, took some guts, but he heads straight to the temple, which is, wow, that's where he caused trouble the day before. But perhaps this is the safest place for Jesus to be. Remember that after clearing out the temple and halting all the sacrifices that were going on in the temple, he began teaching the masses. He began teaching all the people who were gathered, saying, you have turned what was supposed to be an international house of prayer for all the nations into a den of robbers. And he's astonishing the people with his teachings. And so they are sort of taking a liking to him. Maybe it kind of made sense to them. 
See, Jesus had this way of just captivating the attention of his audiences because he taught with authority. And it caused people who were listening to respect him because they recognized that he taught a lot differently than the religious leaders did. He taught a lot differently than the people that they were used to listening to. He taught with authority. Now, the priests aren't going to be so foolish as to act on their plot to kill Jesus right in front of everyone. Uh, So this is maybe the safest place for Jesus to be. The people in the temple were convinced that Jesus had acted rightly. At least some of them were. So before Jesus can even get to the temple courts, before he even reaches the temple courts, a group of chief priests, scribes, and elders get together and they cut him off. They, They intercept him in order to confront him. And look at what they say to him. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you this authority to do these things? Man, you you can tell they are pretty stern here. You can hear the seriousness in their voice. They are not there to play around, and they just cut straight to the chase. This is the issue. The issue, Jesus, is who gave you permission to do what you just did yesterday, clearing out the temple, stopping the sacrificial system. Now, this question is actually a really important question, and if used properly with the right motives, it's a question that's going to help us immensely in our walk with Jesus if we apply it to a questionable action. Who's the boss? Who's really in charge? By what authority am I going to do this or that? Who gave me the authority? Who gave me permission to do these things? That's the question. See, when you boil every issue of every action in life down to the bare bones, this is the question that you are left with. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And if our answer is that it's God's authority upon which the action is based and the action doesn't directly or maybe even indirectly conflict with what Scripture reveals to us, then we have to endorse or accept this action. The main qualifier there is, does it contradict God's Word? And if it doesn't, if the person is doing it by God's authority because he's convinced that God has led him to do this or that, We've got to endorse the action. But if I'm acting as if I am the boss, as if I'm the one who's in charge, as if if I'm the one whose authority my actions are based on, then there is a very, very, very good chance that I shouldn't be doing the action in question because the truth is, not one of us is our own authority. Not one of us. None of us belongs to ourselves. We've all been paid for by a very steep price. We don't belong to ourselves. And so thus, when this question is asked, we need to understand that we're always acting on some authority. Every action that we do is based on somebody's authority. The question is, whose? Is it a legitimate authority? Because there's only one legitimate authority, and that's God. He reveals His will for us to be a people who are pure and upright in His Word. It's as simple as that. And thus we can be sure that if we do something that is in conflict with what Scripture teaches us, if we do something that is impure and not upright, we're acting out of a false sense of authority that we think we have. And thus we are in sin. You see, you and I, all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, we are 
divided. We are always divided in our hearts as people. Our hearts shouldn't be, but they are often divided between the sacred and the secular. So I want you to picture your heart for a minute and just imagine that each one of us has several boardrooms inside of uh, the chambers of our hearts. And in each one of these boardrooms, of course, you know, you'll find a, a big table surrounded by chairs. You'll find a whiteboard. And of course, since we live up in the Pacific Northwest, you've got to have coffee in there. So there's got to be a, a pot of coffee over in the corner. And a committee sits around each one of these tables in our hearts. And the committee consists of different aspects of ourselves our social selves, our private selves, our work selves, our sexual selves, our religious selves, our selves that seek the approval of others, our selves that don't care about the approval of others. And there are plenty of other aspects of our personalities at this table as well. And this committee is constantly voting, constantly debating, and maybe even arguing about whether or not you should do this or that. And they almost never come to a unanimous consensus. But see, when we belong to Jesus, he has the right to come into that room and veto all the board members. He has the right to come in and veto everybody on the committee. He has the right to do that, but more often, he'll just sit there quietly until we ask him for his input. But adding Jesus to the conversation requires something of us. It means subtracting idols. Adding Jesus means subtracting idols, the unfocused, divided parts, divided aspects of ourselves, the committees, and going on his authority, going on his word, what he reveals, because he's the only authority. He's the boss, and we're not. The question that these guys, these uh, religious leaders, have come to Jesus with is the same question you might ask if you walk into a restaurant and you're not happy with your service. Who's in charge around here? Who's the boss? Who gives you the right to act like this? These guys knew that there was only one answer which would have been acceptable. God, right? That's the only acceptable answer to this question. But if Jesus had told them that God was the basis of his authority, they would have tried him for blasphemy, which would have carried the death penalty. They understood that the temple was at least supposed to belong exclusively to God, that he was the one in charge, even though they themselves had desecrated and defiled the temple with their faithlessness. And if Jesus himself claimed to have the authority, they could have just dismissed him as a lunatic or some kind of fringe fanatic and he'll just eventually go away. The people lose interest because he's too radical. But Jesus is going to turn the tables on them as he has done so many times before. They ask him a question and he's going to turn the spotlight right back on them in what can only be seen as a demonstration of incredible wisdom. So we continue... In the next couple of verses, verses 29 and 30. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. You see what Jesus is doing here? This is so cool. I mean, he's maintaining his cool. He's not getting bent out of shape or anything like that. He's keeping his cool while wisely putting these guys in the hot seat. So basically what he's doing is he's examining their credentials with this question. See, he, he knows what's going on here. He knows that this is a trap. He knows that they're trying to set him up. But if they want an answer from him, 
First, he asks them a question that's going to reveal their motives. See, there was nothing wrong with the question that they asked him. It's a good question. By what authority are you doing this? That's a good question, but their motives, their motives were impure. And Jesus saw right through it to their motives. Now, this was a pretty common debating tactic for rabbis, asking them a question in order for you to answer your question to them. And even though this question that he asks them might appear, at least on the surface, to be completely unrelated to what they're asking Jesus and the current situation, Jesus knew that if he were to flush out the sentiment that they held toward John the Baptist, he would also flush out the sentiment that they had toward him, right in front of everyone. But we should see, what we should see here is that Jesus is also answering their question by posing this question, because the answer to the question that they asked him, by what authority are you doing this, is the same answer to the question that he's asked of them. The question boils down to this. Who was John the Baptist's authority? Was it God or was it man? And they realize this. They realize, okay, this is a really tough situation. And so what these guys do, they, they basically call a timeout because they don't want to answer on the spot because they'll really look dumb. So timeout, Jesus, let, let's huddle up. So they, they huddle up so that they can figure out um, not necessarily the, the right answer, but the most politically correct answer is what they're looking for. Uh, So we continue in verses 31 to 33. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You notice that these guys aren't trying, they're not trying to figure out what the right answer is. I think they know what the right answer is. They're trying to figure out how can we answer this without being trapped. Oh, what a mess it is when leaders are dictated by public opinion. When leaders are afraid of what public opinion might be about them. And I'm not saying that we should be less than shrewd or less than wise when we're dealing with people. We should absolutely be shrewd and wise with people. But when public opinion dictates the limits of what a religious leader is willing to talk about, they are no longer leading. They are no longer leading. They're being led. When uh, when public opinion or fear of public opinion dictates the limits of what we say, we're like a dog on a leash. Listen to what Solomon said, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. He wrote, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. It's a contrast. It's one or the other. See, the religious leaders are setting themselves up for failure as a result of their fear of man. And because they have this fear of man, they are not acting in faith. They're not trusting in God, and their fear is not exalting God by any means. And it's really important that each one of us grasps this. Do not feel like you always need to go with the crowd. Do not feel like you always need to go with the crowd. When it comes to God, when it comes to a situation in which someone else's salvation might be on the line, We all have to learn to stand our ground, even though 
even though we might be standing contrary to principles that the world absolutely embraces and absolutely loves. See, the world does not value what God values. The world values the opposite of the things that God values. And for us to truly value God, we have to align our values with his. Write this one down. To truly value God, we must align our values with his. That's what it means to follow Jesus. What does he value? We want to value the same thing. We want to be like him, so we have to value the same thing. And that's what it all boils down to, is what do we value? Do we value being popular? Do we value the applause of man? Or do we value righteousness? Are we willing to say the right thing, even when it's not accepted by the world? Even when it goes against what the world says and loves, are we willing to do it because that's what God values? That's the real question. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We don't always have to conform, especially when it comes to God. Make no mistake about it, friends. The world will stand against you when you take a stand for God. When you take a stand for righteousness, the world will stand against you. But if you're going with the crowd because you're afraid of what people will think or say about you, what Solomon says here is that you're setting a trap for yourself. You're setting a snare for yourself. And notice that the flip side of this proverb is trust. What's the opposite of fearing men according to this proverb? Trusting God. Trusting God. So you cannot fear man and trust God at the same time any more than you can flip a coin and have heads and tails land up at the same time, right? So since you have to pick a side here, fear man or trust God, what do you think I'm going to encourage you to do? (laughs) Sam puts his hand up. Yeah, I'm going to encourage you, trust in God, don't fear man. Which is Jesus choosing here? What are the religious leaders choosing here? Do I dare ask, just between you and the Lord, on Monday morning or Friday evening, which do you most closely resemble? That that convicts me too. The religious leaders are in a lose-lose predicament here. There's nothing that they can say that's going to maintain their authority, maintain their power in front of the people. See, they're either going to lose credibility or they're going to lose their right to be angry with Jesus. And they have too much pride to give an inch either way. I used to play a lot of chess, and there was this move that I used to start out a game with, and if the opponent kind of goes along with it, then I can have their their, uh, king and their rook in check with the same move within five moves, and they have to either give up their king or give up their rook and a bishop uh, within five moves. And it's kind of a, wow, there's, there's no easy way out of this. And that's exactly what's going on here. Either way, they lose. And Jesus knew that they would be too prideful to make a move either way and risk losing something. So instead, they say, I don't know. Of course they know. Of course they know. They're just trying to save face. But their attitude, their attitude was simply this. But men loved darkness instead of light. 
That's what's going on. That's what's in their hearts right now. This is what is being played out. That's really what's going on here. Jesus has forced them out into the light. He's shined the light of truth into the darkest depths of their hearts, and they're trying to scurry back into the darkness because they've got their minds made up. Their hearts are set. Their minds are made up. They're not going to concede to the authority of Jesus, and nothing is going to stand in their way when they're planning to kill him. But before he's done with them, he's going to reveal his identity to them. Now, I have no idea who had the wise idea of adding a chapter break here. There is no chapter break here whatsoever. Not, not, there's not even a breath that gets taken between the final verse of uh, Mark 11, which is verse 33, and Mark chapter 12, verse 1. So we continue, all in the same breath. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them, to these religious authorities. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. And put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. Now, if, if you've studied scripture uh, really thoroughly, if you've studied especially the book of Isaiah, uh, you would recognize that Jesus is actually quoting from Scripture here. He's quoting right out of Isaiah chapter 5. Read the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 5, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And these guys have studied Isaiah unquestionably, so they they would have known, they would have recognized that that's what Jesus is doing here. They also should have recognized that this is going to be a story about themselves. Let's continue, verses 2 to 8. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he, sent another, and he sent them another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, there are a lot of things going on here. The first thing we should probably make note of is that the nation of Israel is represented by the vineyard. The vineyard is is Israel in this story. The vine growers in this parable represent the religious leaders of Israel, and the slaves who are being sent by the vineyard owner represent the prophets that God had sent to speak to the people and the religious leaders throughout the centuries on his behalf, on God's behalf, or the vineyard uh, owner's behalf. So one thing we know about the prophets is that they weren't always popular. They weren't always liked. In fact, more often than not, they were persecuted terribly because of their faithfulness. Jezebel is said to have killed many prophets, many, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. And Elijah would have been one of them, except for the fact that he just, he runs for his life. He takes off, he gets out of there, and so he survives. But Jezebel's coming after him, so he has to run for his life. And we see similar occurrences throughout the Old Testament. The same thing happening over and over again. And we saw the same thing with John the Baptist. Persecution and ultimately martyrdom. So finally, Jesus says that the vineyard owner, God, sent his beloved son last. 
This is the last person that God is going to send. He's the one, by the way, according to Old Testament scriptures, this is what we know, this is what the the disciples are expecting. He's the one who's supposed to rule over the vineyard. Israel, right? But the vine growers, the religious leaders, wanted that power for themselves. So they plotted to kill him and throw him out of the land. So Jesus has revealed two things here, at least two things here. First of all, he's revealed that he knows exactly what is going on inside the hearts of these guys. This plot to kill him is, is not a secret to him. He sees right through it. He sees what's going to happen. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He sees the darkness. And that should have been a clue to them, the fact that he was able to see right into their hearts because only God can see the heart this way. Only God can see the heart this way. He's revealed that he knows that they're plotting his death as a means of keeping themselves in power. So he knows not only that they're planning to kill him, but he knows exactly why they're planning to kill him. And secondly, but more importantly, he's answered their question. Their initial question, by what authority do you do these things? He's answered it. Here's your answer. He, do, he answers it by revealing his identity. I am the son of the vineyard owner. That's me. That's whose authority. You think the son of the vineyard owner had some authority? Oh yeah. He's got the same authority as the vineyard owner. So he's revealed his identity. He's answered their question. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that the beloved son of the vineyard owner represents Jesus in this parable. But then Jesus gives us a prophecy in the form of a conclusion to this parable. We continue in Mark chapter 12, verse 9. He asks them, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And of course, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened. In AD 70, Titus and the Roman Empire come in and they trample Jerusalem. The land doesn't belong to Israel anymore at that point. They are completely owned. They've been overrun. Now on the surface, it might look like Jesus is answering his, his own question here. But uh, you know, when he asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? But Matthew actually tells us that the Pharisees and the chief priests responded by saying, he'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. I think what, what Mark is recording for us here is Jesus repeating after them. Exactly. That's what's going to happen. And so by this judgment, by their own judgment... These religious leaders have sealed and they've prophesied their own fate. Let's continue, verses 10 to 12. Jesus continues saying, Have you not even read this scripture? Man, I love the sarcasm there. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. There's a, there's a lot of sarcasm here, a lot of irony here. Um, the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests should have realized that the person that they were rejecting is this chief cornerstone that Jesus has just, just mentioned. Who do you think this is about? 
This is about me, is what Jesus is saying. This is about me, and you're going to reject me in accordance with the prophecy. And they don't change their minds. They're like, oh, no, they don't change their minds. They don't have like an epiphany like, oh, this is you, and, and I'm, I'm not going to reject this guy. Their hearts are so hard. Their hearts are so hard. This is the power of a hardened heart. The evidence is right in front of them, and they don't care. They don't care, even though they know that it means they're going to be destroyed. And the irony here, the greatest irony here, is that he's asking them if they've even read this particular passage of Scripture. And he goes on to quote from Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23, which, by the way, was a passage that was recited every year as part of the Passover service. Oh, and it just happens to be Passover week. And Jesus is saying, you don't even understand this stuff that you're about to teach. You don't even understand this stuff that you know by rote memory. They recited it, but they absolutely didn't understand it. It was a central part of their tradition. But did they apply it? You see what he's done here? Right in front of everyone, he's revealed that the religious leaders don't even know the book that they've spent their entire lives studying. They don't even know it. And they should be humiliated now that they finally understand. They finally see exactly what Jesus is is saying, but instead of humbling themselves and giving up, they're even more determined to kill Jesus. But again, their fear of man, their fear of what people might think, their fear of public opinion prevents them from acting. And so they leave the scene and they go to come up with another way to trap Jesus. They're going to send another type of earthly authority his way. So we pick it up in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came to him, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So these guys who had been humiliated by Jesus and went away in the previous passage decide that their next course of action is to send a group of Pharisees with some of Herod's faithful followers. See, the Herodians were a political party in first century Israel. And they supported, of course, the the Herods and the policies that the Herods implemented by the authority of the Roman Empire. So while the Pharisees and the Herodians weren't exactly friends, the Pharisees were able to convince the Herodians that they have a common enemy in Jesus. And so the Pharisees are the ones who do all the talking here. They ask Jesus if they should pay a poll tax to Caesar or not. And the trap that they're trying to set up for Jesus is this. If he says, yes, yes, you should pay the poll tax, he'll turn the people against him. And the people, remember, the people are the ones whose support prevented the religious leaders from seizing Jesus. 
So if he turns them against him, they'll be free to seize him. But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay the poll tax, then the Herodians will allow the Jewish leaders to seize him. So it looks like a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But there's a great moral question behind all of this. Should you pay taxes to a government whose actions you oppose? Should you pay taxes to a government that supports things that you oppose? This past week, uh, some of you know that the IRS sent over a thousand letters out to over a thousand pastors warning them sternly not to talk about politics from the pulpit because as a nonprofit corporation, we're not allowed to say we vote this way or we vote that way. We're not allowed to talk like that as part of the agreement of having a tax, a, a, a tax, uh, tax exempt status. So in response to this letter, over a thousand pastors across our nation have vowed to have Pulpit Freedom Sunday next Sunday, next week, in which they have vowed that they will candidly speak about politics. They will say, we vote this way and we vote that way, and they will challenge the IRS's authority to revoke their tax-exempt status. Now, if you're wondering if I would ever participate or condone participation in such a thing, let me answer as straightforwardly as I can. No! <laughs> No, no, no. You see, a pastor's job, when he's behind the pulpit, is not to talk about politics. It's not to say, you should be just like me. And if you want to belong here, you must be just like me. That is not a pastor's job. Because you know what happens when you, you know what you get when you mix politics and religion? Politics. Period. That's all it turns out to be. If you boil the two down together, all you get is politics. There is no biblical mandate anywhere in Scripture for pastors or preachers to talk about politics or to dictate a political policy from the position of the pulpit. Man, that's a lot of, a lot of peas in there. Uh, to, to challenge the authority of the governing authorities, to challenge their right, it's just plain and simple sinful rebellion. That is the rebellion of people who mean well, but still have those sinful tendencies in their hearts to challenge. See, there is no justification for doing something like this anywhere in Scripture. Now, if the government were to suddenly pass a law that says, um, you know, you can't talk about the Bible in your church. You can talk about anything you want but the Bible in your church. Now, that's a situation where we would challenge it. We'd have to challenge it. And even if they, they came back and said no again, we'd still have to do it. If the government were to come out and say, you know, you can't say that something is wrong because the Bible says that something's wrong, uh, that's hate speech. We have the obligation to God to disobey. We have the obligation to God to go ahead and talk about sin, to call it like Scripture calls it, nevertheless. We have an obligation to violate what the government says that we're supposed to do. So should we obey the government, or should we obey the Bible? Most of the time, you see, it's not really an either-or question, most of the time. Unless the government forces us to do something that the Bible prohibits, or if the government prohibits us from doing something that the Bible instructs, 
We have to abide by the laws of the governing authorities. Anything else is sin. Anything else is sin because it's God who has ordained. It's God who has put the governing authorities into the positions that they have. So really, when you refuse to submit to the laws of the governing authorities, you are not only refusing to submit to the governing authorities, ultimately you are refusing to submit to God because he put that authority in place. So what we see again here is just incredible wisdom from Jesus. They ask him this this tricky question, and he doesn't answer it directly. He doesn't answer it directly. He, He asks for a coin to be brought to him. He asks someone else to describe what's on it. He never even touches it. He asks somebody else to describe what's on it. Caesar's on it. Well then, Jesus reasons, it obviously must belong to Caesar. Now while the Jews weren't happy about the Roman occupation of Israel by any means, let's face it, they received a lot of benefits because of what the Roman Empire was doing, such as peace. You know, there wasn't a lot of war going on. The people were able to go along with their daily business, day-to-day business, freely because the Roman Empire was there keeping the peace. Um, the Roman Empire also built this incredibly efficient system of roads. If you've heard the, the saying that all roads lead to Rome, it came from this era. They built this incredibly efficient system of roads, which not only made transportation easier, but because transportation was easier, it made getting food easier. It made commerce easier. And it made it a lot easier for people from distant countries to come to Israel to celebrate the Passover so that they could make money off of those people. There are a lot of benefits of being part of the Roman Empire that the Jewish people were enjoying. Now, while Caesar had a right to a portion of a person's income, he doesn't, he didn't have the right to a person's heart. He didn't have the right to a person's mind or to their soul. See, the the Jews had just as much responsibility to render to Caesar what belonged to Caesar as they did to give themselves to God. So Jesus is basically saying, you know what? This is not an either-or situation. You can do both. You can do both if you keep your priorities straight and make wise choices. Not paying taxes, not paying a poll tax is not a wise idea, and neither is living your life as though you are your own authority. And for that matter, neither is speaking about something that the Bible doesn't mandate in a context that the government doesn't permit. So what Jesus has shown us here is that human authority is actually limited in its capacity to govern because it can only deal with certain parts of a person. It can deal with their finances. It can deal with a lot of their actions. But Scripture is clear about this. God has put every government that's ever existed into place as a means of holding authority on earth, even the bad governments, even the the tyrants throughout history. But the government can never regulate Things like the human heart, the human mind, or the human soul. They can regulate tax, but they can't regulate those things. The government can't control who or what we worship. That choice is ours. See, as followers of Jesus, we belong to the kingdom that he established, the kingdom of God. And thus we have something of a dual citizenship. And our citizenship in our country dictates that we should pay money 
as the government that he put in place asks for money through taxes, through forms of taxes, because of the benefits that we receive. And our our citizenship in the kingdom of God requires that we pledge our first and primary obedience and commitment to God. And if the two authorities conflict, obviously we go with loyalty to God. So who's the boss in your life? Who gives you the right to do the things that you do? Who is the ultimate authority in your life? See, there are an infinite number of incorrect answers here, but there's only one correct answer. God. That's the only correct answer. Even for the person who doesn't believe that God is the ultimate authority, it doesn't change the fact that He is. He is. And so trust Him. Trust Him. Trust His ways. When He says to do something, whether you agree with it or not, go with it. Because He is the authority. Even when it's difficult as is often the case with things like forgiving, which we saw in the previous passage. And even when the rest of the world is doing their own thing and going a totally different way, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So he's saying, you you can expect that that the world isn't going to like what you stand for. The world has a totally different set of values than you will if you're one of mine. So live in a way that shows the world who the ultimate authority is, even if it means sometimes you've got to stand alone. Sometimes you've got to go against the flow. Sometimes you've got to take a stand against the crowd. And even if it means being rejected by somebody that you love. Know this. Any sadness or remorse that you might feel as a result of being rejected or persecuted because of the fact that you stood your ground for God, all those feelings are temporary. But the joy of being in the presence of Jesus is eternal. I know which one I pick. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your word sometimes lays things out so simply for us. And sometimes it's it's just eye-opening for us. And we realize that your word is nothing but wisdom. Your word is true. Your word dictates such a wise way of living. God, I pray that you would teach us through conviction, through circumstances, through relationships, to value the things that you value to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate, and teach us to be wise, teach us to be shrewd as we stand for you in this world. We love you. Lord, teach us to value the things that you value for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.